Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've been hearing ads for Zencaster these past months. Interested in sponsoring this show or podcast ads for your business? Go to zen.ai forward slash the archaeology show and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 170. Today we have a Timelines episode and we will be looking at the year 2200 BCE in the UK, Mesopotamia, and Egypt. Let's dig a little deeper. All right. Welcome to the show, everyone. How's it going? Pretty good. We are in rainy, rainy Oregon. <laughs> yes. But at least we have sake. At least we have sake. Yeah, we're at one of our harvest host places that we use as overnights when we're going from point A to point B. We're on our way up to Washington right now. And this is a cool little sake brewer, I guess you would mm-hmm. call it. So, yeah. Yeah, you know who didn't have sake? Oh, who did not? Anyone in the UK, because they didn't know what rice was. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. When did they get rice? Uh, Probably after like the whole spice trade thing started to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would right. be my guess. Well, they certainly didn't have it in the year 2200 BCE. Indeed. Which is the year that we are focusing on for today's Timelines episode. If you're new and you haven't heard a Timelines episode before, the idea behind it is that we pick an event or a place or a very specific point or moment in time. And then we talk about that time and that place and Mm -hmm. what was significant and important about it. But then we look at two other places in segments two and three around the world in different places, but at the same time, just to see what was going on there while this significant thing, the anchor event, as we call it sometimes... Mm -hmm was happening. So that's what we're doing. And 2200 BCE is the year that Stonehenge was completed. So that's why we decided to make that our anchor event for today's episode. Yeah. Stonehenge is located, as we said, in the UK. If you know anything about the UK, it's located on the Salisbury Plain. They have great sticks there. Um, (laughs) In in Wiltshire, England. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I think it said it was near uh, Amesbury, too. If you know where any of those places are, then go visit Stonehenge if you haven't already. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, I would love to go someday. I know. I know. Bucket list for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, The construction of it took a long time, and the reason is there's a lot of stuff there. And we'll talk about length of construction, stuff like that in a little bit. But basically, it consists of an outer ring of the really tall vertical stones that everybody's seen in the pictures. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't know what Stonehenge looks like, that'll be really surprising to me. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, there's just like pictures of it everywhere. They always show up. They're in movies, all yeah. kinds of stuff. But those vertical stones that you can see from a distance are called the Sarsen Standing Stones. Mm-hmm. They're about 13 feet high, 7 feet wide, and weigh about 25 tons each. Wow. Now, we are sitting in an RV <laughs> that we live in. Yes. It's 36 feet long. Uh-huh. Drives down the road with all of our worldly possessions in it. We sold our house. We have nothing else but this RV. Uh, well, we have a storage unit, too. You and just it, like to pretend it doesn't sh- exist. 
And that RV, this RV weighs as much as one of those stones. As much as one of them. Yeah. That's crazy. And it's half the the height or length in this case. Yeah. So, yeah, that's crazy. I'm going to make RV hinge and just back <laughs> RV hinge. Oh, my God. Isn't there car hinge somewhere? There's hinges everywhere. Yeah. So you, like we could have all a whole, kinds of hinges. We could have a whole hinge episode. Yeah. Well, yeah. they're not all, like, archaeological. It's more oh, like no. modern interpretations yeah. of a hinge. Yeah, they're joke hinges. Hinge just means circle of things right well it does kind of but there's also talk about how it's kind of the 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 root of the word hinge because uh, in in particular talking about stonehenge there's the lintel stones that are on the top Uh of the the outer ring and the inner ring right Uh, some are there still some are not there anymore and either way they look as though they're I guess hinged off of one and onto the other. Like you could just like lift it off, that kind of thing. Oh, oh, the way it's attached. Like you could just lift it up, and almost like it was hinged right. there. Yeah. If it didn't weigh yeah. ten times, you could just like right. yeah. Right. Uh, now that that is, I only saw one reference that actually mentioned that. I didn't even actually put it in our notes and hadn't really intended to talk about it. But uh, in, <laughs> you're welcome. I know, right? <laughs> but in like the modern world, the word hinge is taken to refer to like a round you know yeah. set of things because mm-hmm. there's like wood hinges all over the place yeah there, there's talk just to take another little sidetrack here i've heard when i've done other podcasts and and you know done other readings in the past that they think uh, re- researchers think especially in the uk that there were quite quite possibly you know many 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 wood hinges through time yeah but they obviously don't last no i mean you probably see evidence of them below the ground because the, yeah, the posts looking. would leave a mark but yeah you have to be looking for it you yeah. have to be excavating otherwise there's no no way you would see that right so the rest about stonehenge again those top stones are called lintel stones they're mm-hmm. they're horizontal lintel stones that kind of connect them together mm-hmm. inside that outer ring is a inner ring of the smaller what they call blue stones right and blue stones the name comes from i think it comes from the quarry in wales where where we think they, where came, they from. came from yeah. right right oh yeah well, i think we covered a story yeah last year or something about how they know that the stones in at stonehenge came from somewhere in wales yeah we'll talk about where they really came from and how they got there a little bit later so inside those is another well, little set of stones mm-hmm. called trilithons. Okay. And it's actually, there's just two of them, the two bulky vertical sarsens. The sarsens, again, they're just called the sarsens, upright. the ones that are upright like yeah. that, joined by one lintel. Okay. So just a little, a little spot in the middle there. And the interesting thing, of course, about Stonehenge, aside from what the heck is it and what is it for mm-hmm. uh, and what do we do with it? But it does seem to be... Uh, oriented towards sunrise on the summer solstice. Now, I'm not exactly sure which part of it is oriented because it's round. Right. So what part of it is oriented towards sunrise on the summer solstice? Well, is it, or is it that center bit Ah, that is oriented towards, I took a class in college where we talked about it and I think it was more like an altar situation that while they're calling it that in the middle part and that's the part that was oriented that way. Well, and I'd like to point two things out. One, Stonehenge is round. Right. Except from that middle bit. Mm-hmm. Stonehenge is round. And two, it, there's always a chance it could be coincidence. <laughs> yes. That it's the solstice. Yeah. I mean, you. Yeah. it's a round circle, right? So 360 degrees. I know it's a one in 360 chance that it's pointed directly at the right direction, yeah. but it's still a chance, right? Yeah. It can still happen. Now, Stonehenge is unique in its size, of course, and, and complexity, but it's not unique as far as... Uh, complex earthworks go right. in England. Right. Uh, it was um, it was located within the most dense complex of 
also complex earthworks Mm -hmm. within England. There's all kinds of stuff in that area, Mm -hmm. most of it dating from the Neolithic to the Bronze Ages. But it's just like a a dense area of, I guess, ritualistic earthworks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, even when you and I, we rented a car and drove around Scotland, Mm -hmm. remember? We were staying at a... I don't know, hmm. a B&B or something somewhere in Argyle, I think. And yeah. and we just, like, the guy, the owner was like, oh, yeah, there's there's a, a henge or whatever it was out that way. And we just kind of, like, went out there and took a look. And there was just, like, a, a stones in an alignment out there because that's what people did back then. Yep. I had Rachel hold her ring in her hand, and I threw her at one of the stones to see if she would travel back in time a few hundred years. <laughs> and she did not. That was the one Still up, here. That was the one up by Culloden. But, yes, <laughs> definitely did that outlander style didn't go anywhere unfortunately <laughs> yeah i think you have to do it intentionally if you just throw somebody at the stone and they're holding like a uh, jewel oh, trust me you didn't have to throw me i was trying to go through the stones <laughs> nice yeah so we we put stonehenge in here because 2200 bce is thought of as the latest stage right. of construction yeah. a lot of this stuff is incredibly hard to date yeah like it's impossible yeah. to know the exact year that right that it finished and then what do you call finished like they were still using it so that's a really hard thing to put a date on but 2200 seems to be about when whatever construction was going on there seemed to Mm -hmm. to end anyway yeah but it took a total of around 900 years we think again with subjective dating methods Mm -hmm. to actually construct Stonehenge now obviously there weren't like plans laying around and somebody was like well it's been 400 years we ought to put that other (laughs) circle together so it's more like they built some stuff used it for a while and were like hey it'd be cool if we did this and like added more to it or changed it or did whatever they did you know that's what humans do I'd like to think there was a you know a a group of priests or something like that that started this whole thing not priests but priests whatever they would have been called 3100 BCE they said this is what we want to do this is our grand design and that knowledge was culturally transmitted for a thousand years to complete this design. But yeah. obviously, that's probably not true. Probably and not. the way it was used, what it was used for, who it was used by was probably probably changed dramatically over that thousand years, mm-hmm. I would I would assume. Yeah, yeah, totally. But that earliest phase of construction actually didn't start with stones at all. It started with a an earthen bank that mm-hmm. once you, you know, you dig out and make an earthen bank, you end up with a ditch. So you had a ditch, a, a lower area and an earthen bank. I don't know if I've seen any research to this effect, but I'm willing to bet there was probably some sort of wood henge or smaller stones or something like that there originally. Yeah. And then for whatever reason, the massive stones that were eventually put there probably replaced, replaced other things. Them. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I don't it got th- more important or something and they wanted to make it bigger. Yeah. Or who knows? Well, it's usually usually some mucky muck was like, I need to show how big I yeah. am. Yeah. Yeah. How Let's important I am. Thing. How much money I have. Yeah. How many people I can command. All that kind of thing. Right. So who built Stonehenge? Well, there's a common... If you ask who built Stonehenge and and who did it, people always say the the Celts, right? uh, the Celtic people. That's actually wrong. One of the things I saw that I read was that was interpreted to be Celts by somebody like 150 years ago, some researcher a long time ago. Not 150 years ago. It was a long time ago, though. Mm -hmm. And that just kind of got propagated through the narrative, oh. but it's been pretty well proven that it wasn't the Celts. Okay, then who was it? Uh, it was just the, you know, the local, um, well, some pe- some people think it could have been the Danish. Okay. But whatever, like, local tribe or group of people live there? And- yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, but Danish aren't the local people that live there. No, like, no, no. They came over and did it. But I don't prob- know what the, right. yeah. 
I don't know what the evidence for that is, but some of the legends say that it could have been the Danish that did it. It could have been ruins of a Roman temple, mm. and it could have been just the local people who lived in the area, you know, doing wacky things. My favorite one, though, however, is that Merlin the Magician, yes, that Merlin <laughs> of Arthurian legend, magically transported the stones from Ireland and then had giants assemble them. <laughs> now, I'm wondering... If he like magic stones all the way from Ireland, like why not just put them in place, magic them into place? <laughs> like he magic these RV sized stones over there, threw them in a pile, and said, "Okay, giants, get to work." <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. just mean for the for the working class of giants. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> but yeah, there's uh, there's other theories too, and and of course there's one theory that says that it's a landing pad for spacecraft. Right, got to bring yes. ancient aliens in, yep. or yep. not. Don't need to talk about that anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Either way, it took about a thousand years to get to what it looks like now. Right. I don't think that, uh, I mean, either either what we're looking at is the final design or, you know, it would be unlikely, I feel like, that stones were taken away. The stones were taken away yeah. and then put somewhere else. It's just right. it's just the, the, the monumentality of doing that. Yeah, that would be a lot of you work. Know? They need a really good reason to get rid of a stone. Of course, we think that too. And when we say this is why people go to aliens, they're like, why in the hell would anybody 5,000 years ago want to drag stones or whatever they did to get them there and then raise them up and just the work involved to get them to where they're at? Yeah, totally. Yeah. But it makes sense that this final, the final monument that we can see is, it's an iteration, right? Mm -hmm. It just, they iterated, iterated, iterated. And at some point, either it was perfectly exact for what the people of that time wanted mm-hmm. and nobody after them wanted to change it or it just people just stopped using it and they left the area or whatever and there's lots of reasons why why it is what it is now so yeah and like i said the work involved is just astronomical mm-hmm. uh, it's estimated that and I, I don't know how good these estimates are but it's estimated that it could have taken over 20 million hours to construct Stonehenge. Now, when they say hours, they usually mean like person hours, mm-hmm. um, not like consecutive hours. Right. Yeah. So if you got 100 people working on it for eight hours, that's yeah. 800 hours. Yeah, yeah. Right. Totally. All right. So what is Stonehenge for? Well, we mentioned that it's uh, partially or, you know, it's aligned to the summer solstice. Mm-hmm. And, and others think that, you know, there's, there's that, that it could be a scientific observatory of some sort. Mm-hmm. Now, observatory is a weird word. Observatory usually means you're using some kind of like telescope, but it could have been just... If it were aligned to some sort of stellar patterns that they saw in the sky that were important to them from obviously a ritualistic standpoint, mm-hmm. they could have marked those patterns with the stones, mm-hmm. right? Still a lot of work in over a thousand years to be able to do that and coordinate that message. Yeah. Seems pretty lot. tough. Yeah. yeah. But again, uh, it has alignments to the sun and the moon. So bringing those theories into a little bit of credibility. Yeah. One theory says it was a healing place. There's people that still go there for that. They do that on the solstices, of course. Uh, there's a lot of tours, but there's a lot of people that just go like dance around naked at, on the solstice at uh, at Stonehenge and <laughs> think that it's healing them. But, yeah, uh, that's crazy. And it's that idea is based on the smaller blue stones in particular mm-hmm. having magical powers. Yeah. But I wonder why it would be those ones in particular that that are the the healing stones. I don't know. Well, some some were saying that you know, the fact that the blue stones were transported 145 miles from Wales, they're like, why would you do that if it weren't magical powers? Well, yeah, right? yeah. Oh, so, or they thought they had magical powers. Well, anyway. exactly, right. exactly. Yeah. So, I in the end, we'll probably never know what the exact purpose was, mm-hmm. but 
again, for 5,000 years, people have been making pilgrimages to Stonehenge to this day. You know, if you're listening to this podcast in near real time, uh, take a look at Stonehenge festivities coming up on June 21st on uh, on the summer solstice. On the summer solstice, yeah. There are probably lots of things going on right then. Yeah, and, probably. And it's going to be crazy. Yeah. So go there and take a good Instagram photo. <laughs> there you go. Yep. All right. So let's go from Stonehenge to the Akkadian Empire in Mesopotamia. We're going to do that on the other side of the break. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 170. And... Rachel is going to talk about the Akkadian Empire because I didn't really do the research on that one. So, <laughs> so I'm teaching you. So teach me. You can me, just call me Professor Rachel. Teach me about the Akkadian Empire. Akak. Yes, it's AKK. Oh my God. Anytime it's an AKK, I'm like Akkadian Empire. It's like that song. I know the song. I can't think of the name. I can't either. Yeah. All right. Heart attack. Heart attack. Heart attack. Akkakakakak. We're taking all of this out in editing. <laughs> it's 100% staying in. No, it's not. <laughs> the Akkadian Empire was the Mesopotamian power from around 2334 to 2154 BCE. And kind of like Stonehenge... There are specific dates because we have specific rulers and we know when they started and we know when they died. So, like, we have the reign of this group. But when you're talking about an empire, it's kind of hard to, like, pinpoint an exact date. But I decided that this one fell into the 2200 BCE timeline perfectly because at that time they had been in power for a couple hundred years and things were kind of starting to unravel for them. So mm-hmm. it's it's sort of like the end of one of the the first great powers in the Mesopotamia area. So that's my justification <laughs> for including them in the 2200 BCE timeline episode. At its greatest extent, the Akkadian Empire reached as far as Anatolia in the north, that would be up in the Turkey area, and then central Iran to the east, Arabia to the south, and then the Mediterranean to the west. And if you've ever heard of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, it's kind of like all in that area there. Yeah. And if you don't know where any of that is, anytime you hear Mesopotamia, that's generally the Middle East. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, That area. Yep. Yep. Now, the main city that that is associated with this empire is called... Akkad or Akkad? How would you say that? Akkad. I think Akkad. Akkad. I think they're more of an awe sound. Yeah, Akkad. It's A-K-K-A-D. And they, have, they archaeologists have never actually found the city. So we don't know where it was. We know it existed because of writings both at the time and in the future 
uh, referring hmm. to it in the past, but we don't know exactly where it is. So that's kind of cool. And it it's it's sort of fun to think about because it's like all the archaeology tropes in pop culture, right? They're always looking for the lost city of blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah. this is truly a lost city. We knew it existed. We just haven't been able to find it yet. Yeah. There might not be a lot to find on the ground, and maybe that's why it hasn't been found. There's a lot of reasons why, but, you know, that's that's going to be, like, archaeology goals for the future. Find mm-hmm. find a cod. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was probably on the Euphrates River, and it's possible that the city and the people and even the language predated the Akkadian Empire and it's possible that Sargon who was the first first emperor of the Akkadian Empire or first king I guess he he might have actually like restored the city rather than founding it hmm. so he kind of came in took a place that was sort of struggling or falling apart and then in their name rose you know brought it to power and and then conquered the surrounding areas so without really knowing much about the history there it sounds like it could have been a situation where there wasn't a lot of strong leadership and somebody kind of rose to the top and said let's do this yeah that's exactly what happened here and it's why the Akkadian empire is kind of credited as being one of the first major powers to kind of consolidate all of the disparate tribes and cities mm-hmm. and, and different groups that lived in this area and, and brought them all under one rule, one power. Yeah. And it was because of Sargon. Sargon the first I've heard, I saw him called in a couple places. He really was a strong force of personality and he founded this really strong family dynasty and that began in 2334 BCE and he basically conquered all these disconnected city-states that were all around the area. They they were mostly Sumerian. They spoke the Sumerian language and they were kind of part of that group, but but different as well. I don't think Sumeria was super hmm. well... Um, um, it wasn't very together, you know? It was yeah. kind of just like different groups and different populations everywhere. And he, he brought them all under this, this one rule. And that's why he's important because he was one of the first to bring all these together like that. And he initially kept control by placing his best and most trusted advisors in charge of these various cities and tribes and places. And that helped him keep control from afar, which I thought was really smart. He basically like took all his besties mm-hmm. <laughs> and sent them out to to keep control. And it allowed him to have to have hands in all of all of these different places and keep control over it. So I thought that was very good political strategy. Now, Sargon was succeeded by two of his sons, and when Sargon died, there was immediate revolting. I think people saw the opportunity to get their freedom back, but the son, the first son, whose name I didn't write down, it's not really important, the names, but the first son, he conquered the revolts. He spent most of his reign conquering revolts, Mm -hmm. putting down revolts, and then the second son took over when he died and then did the same thing <laughs> and then finally naram sin who's the grandson of sargon he ruled for 36 years and he really helped to bring it into a prosperous time period he didn't have as many revolts to to put down he was able to focus on expanding the borders and solidifying power rather than all of the rebellious tribes that had been causing problems before so they hit this period of prosperity. They went through a couple rulers. And then by 2200 BCE, which is the time we're focusing on here, Sargon's great-grandson, Shar Kali Shari, was on the throne. And that is kind of where the end of the Akkadian Empire begins. It's not really all his fault. It just, you know, 
they just unravel eventually. Yeah. So the end of the Acadian Empire. Yeah. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah. And it had a potential cause that we see in lots of different empires around the world. And it's probable that this this one particular thing is what caused the end of a lot of different empires. So there was like a warming period going on in the area and it caused widespread drought. It caused the crops to fail and that in return caused famine probably. Mm -hmm. And it probably could have caused disruption in trade as well. So all of that kind of happened because of this, this climate change situation that happened it was very regional but there it's documented across the world sort of across the same like latitudes around the world you see it across like northern africa and into the middle east where this is and i think over in uh south america as well you see the effects of this so it was sort of like this this global warming that happened in this particular region yeah so things like this as we're going to find out in the next segment as well often have disastrous impacts on dynasties and regimes and just rulers in general because the rulers are seen as sometimes they're just seen as gods yeah and when when you know things fail well who do you blame right you blame god you blame god yeah. and and if it's if they're not seen as gods they're still seen as the people who are supposed to solve all your problems mm-hmm. and if they can't solve all your problems because the earth is saying nope we're going to do something different right now yeah then you get weakened empires you get invasions you get rebellions you get you get just a a whole a whole bad time yeah it seems like in this case the the empire was pretty severely weakened by the the lack of food, basically. Yeah. And that allowed all these different, all these rebellions that in the past would have been, you know, crushed. It, they just couldn't deal with them as easily. And it just became overwhelming at a certain point. And, mm-hmm. and the area that was under the Akkadian control just kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And by the year 2150, it was basically just the city, the city that it started out at. Yeah. It, it was basically just that city area. And then eventually the city just kind of faded away. Maybe we'll find the city of Akkad someday and then archaeology can help fill in the story of what happened to it, why it faded away. Or maybe it didn't fade away, but it was occupied by other people. But it's definitely not referred to as the, the great power and city that it was beyond that date. It's interesting we know all this and we don't even know where the city is. Like we haven't excavated it, we haven't seen it. So all of this knowledge comes from written accounts? It does. Yeah, there's some Babylonian writings that that refer to it. And we'll talk about it in a minute, but one of Sargon's daughters was actually she did a lot of writings and we mm-hmm. have them. So we have some information from that too. So there's a couple interesting things to note. The Akkadian Empire created the first postal system. Nice. <laughs> Isn't that cool? What they did is they had clay tablets that were wrapped in an like an outer clay envelope, basically. <laughs> These weren't light. <laughs> they were not light. <laughs> they, you probably only took one at a time, and it cost a lot of money to make that happen. Mm-hmm. But the name and the address were on the outside for the recipient, and then it was marked with the seal from the sender. And then you had to physically break the clay seal <laughs> in order to open nice. it. Therefore for it kept tampering from happening or at least surreptitious tampering like if you broke the seal everybody would know it there's no way to put that back together so i thought that was really cool that they (laughs) created that system Mm -hmm. and then the other thing that i kind of alluded to earlier is sargon's daughter 
well, we think daughter. The best information we have is daughter. She could have been like a um, a sister, possibly, but wow. they're 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 thinking daughter. Yeah. But and this is because of translation stuff. It's just really hard to translate from these old languages. But her name, uh, her name was En Enheduana, and she was a high priestess of Inanna at Ur, and. Basically, Sargon put her into this high priestess position in Ur, and that gave him control over the city. So this is feeding back into his putting his yeah. his people into spots of power, right? And because she was in control and she had this high position, it just it gave her a lot of power. She became a really strong ruler in her own right of that, you know, under her father, obviously, but still a really strong ruler. And it also gave her the ability to learn how to read and write essentially so she start. she's recognized today as the world's first writer who's <laughs> known by name now of course we have writings earlier than her mm-hmm. but we know her name and think specifically things that she wrote and it seems like she, you know all of that just shows how she was very powerful very able i think that's really cool yeah Nice. One of the things that is attributed to her specifically is the exaltation of Inanna, where she tells the story, and this is supposedly a true story, but she tells the story of being driven from her post as a high priestess of Ur, cast into exile, and then from exile, raising the power and the support and what was, whatever was needed to go back and take over her position again. And all of that is basically like a, a poem kind of thing. Mm. Kind of like kind of like the Odysseus and the the old poems right. from, from those times, right? That's how they told stories back then. It was in this like poetry format. Sure. And we know she wrote it. It was it's attributed to her in her name. So nice. that's really cool. You that don't is have really a cool. lot you don't have a lot of female writers and leaders like that so it's it's neat to have yeah. that in this case so so yeah that's the Akkadian Empire they were started much earlier going pretty strong and then through some climate change issues <laughs> yeah you know lost all their food and the the empire sort of faded away and by 2200 it was fading rather than beginning you could say. Well, despite having built huge pyramid-shaped spaceships to escape this planet, the Egyptians were also having a bad time <laughs> right around that time period for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the end of the Old Kingdom on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here from the APN. You've heard me talk about Zencaster for a few months now, and there's never been a better time to check this out and start a podcast. Zencaster has hosting tools and both audio and video podcasting capability. Many of you have already clicked on the link in the show notes, and we thank you for that. Use the code TAS, that's T-A-S, at the link in the show notes, or go to Zencaster.com and use the code, that's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com, to get 30% off your first three months. Again, use the code TAS for 30% off your first three months at Zencaster.com. We've got a contest. The folks over at AEO Screen are giving one of our listeners a brand new screen. Pick anything from their website and they'll ship it to you. Not an archaeologist? No problem. These are great for gardening and other tasks around the house. I mean, come on, right? Anyway, these are great screens and you won't be disappointed. We'll pick the winning entry at the end of May. Head over to arcpodnet.com screen for details on how to enter. It's easy and you can get multiple entries. Increase your chances by helping out others. That's arcpodnet.com screen for details on how to win. 
Want to keep this conversation going? Want to talk to the hosts of this show and other fans? Then join our membership program and get exclusive access to the hosts, other fans, and early access to these episodes and bonus segments and content. You'll also get forever access to our live show back catalog and any other shows ad-free. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay, welcome back to The Archaeology Show, episode 170. This is our third and final segment regarding timelines, 2200 BCE. Mm-hmm. And we started talking about Stonehenge and then went to Acadia over in Mesopotamia and then down to Egypt and yeah. the end of the Old Kingdom. Mm-hmm. So the Old Kingdom in Egypt dates from about 2700 or so to 2200 BC and uh, BCE, I should say. And this is known as the age of the pyramids. Mm-hmm. This is when all the big stuff really kind of kicks off. Yep. And we did talk about this in a, in a different timelines episode. Mm-hmm. So you could go back and listen to that one because we'll talk more about the the beginnings of of the old kingdom. But right. today we're talking about sort of the end of it and how, how that ending came about. Right, right. Now the old kingdom and a lot of the things that got done within the old kingdom, it, it encompassed several dynasties, but actually the third to the sixth dynasties, technically, it kind of started in the third dynasty mm-hmm. and kind of ended in the sixth dynasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fourth dynasty is the one where, you know, pretty much everything went down. All the big stuff. Yeah, all the big stuff. Yeah. So you had the big pyramid builder kings and first off, I found it interesting doing my research. I just assumed all the rulers in Egypt were called Pharaoh, and it was not until the New Kingdom that they were called Pharaoh. Oh, really? Yeah. They were just called kings before that. Oh. I think by the time they became Pharaoh, that was more of a, your God. You're not just king. You're a living God amongst us. Oh, okay. So Pharaoh is more of a God-like stature. Okay. Well, the pyramid, the pyramid builder kings. However, you have uh, Snefiru, Khufu. We've heard of. I've, I've heard of Khufu That's lots of times. That's a big one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Khafre and Men Menkare. Yeah. Probably butchering all those words. <laughs> I think that's about right. Yeah. The old kingdom, just to get your timeline down, is of course followed by the middle kingdom and followed by the new kingdom after that, and. There's there's little intermittent things, not intermittent, but I guess inter... The intermediate periods. Yeah, intermediate's a good yeah, word. Yeah, yeah, intermediate periods in between mm-hmm. those. Yeah. And of course, Egypt wasn't like, okay, guys, we got to look at your watch. We got to start the Middle Kingdom yeah. now. <laughs> right. Like, so, to them, they were just living their lives, right? right. They didn't, they weren't looking at no. when one period ended and the other began. We, it's us looking back on it, assigning these time periods. Let alone knowing what kingdom it was. It was hard enough to count backwards with the calendar. <laughs> right. So, because they're just like going backwards in time the whole time. Oh yeah. They're like, why was it 2300 yesterday and now it's 2290? I don't understand. (laughs) So anyway, these are constructs put together by historians. Yes. Yeah, basically. And and it's really Egyptian historians that that have put all this together. And I get it. We have to do the best we can to keep track of it because otherwise it's just like this massive amount of time where people lived and occupied the same area and you have to start splitting things out so that you can keep track of where it is yeah. and what happened and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. I may have misled uh, a minute ago when I said pharaohs were seen as living gods. I think they were just, pharaohs were just like on the another embodied, level. They were like the embodiment yeah, of it kind of. Be- because the kings of the old, old kingdom were also seen as living gods. Oh, they like were. People who okay. were just like gods amongst you. Mm. So pharaohs, I don't know. It, it's just a different thing. Hmm. Anyway, King... Dozer was the, and it's spelled D-J-O-S-E-R. And I always remember that because um, Dozer 
was mentioned in the first uh, Ghostbusters movie <laughs> as one of the one of the bad guys. Uh, but they say Dozer, and then they talk about ancient Sumerian, and they just like get it all mixed up. <laughs> yeah. They do a real bad job. Yeah, they do a really bad job. With well, that. I can't look at that word without going to Joser in my the head. Joser, so, yeah, Joser. Yeah. So King jo- Joser. <laughs> He was the first king of the third dynasty, and he moved the royal capital of Egypt over to Memphis. Uh huh. Not Tennessee. Not Memphis, Tennessee. But oddly <laughs> enough, Memphis, Tennessee gets his name from Memphis, from, Egypt. From Egypt, yeah. And there is uh, reconstructions of Egyptian and I think Roman or Greek architecture in oh, Memphis. Oh, really? Do you remember we went to the? Uh, there was some park or something like that, and there was like a, a replica of the Parthenon there or something like that. <laughs> no, I don't remember that. <sighs> so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I have a terrible memory, so that's not shocking. Well, but... And I'm pretty sure Memphis has a pyramid. It's like a glass pyramid huh. uh, downtown. I don't know what the building is. Okay. But yeah, right. it's crazy. Hey, lean into it. Well, that's Sounds what I'm good. talking about. <laughs> Saqqara is, a, is a, a place that has been built at quite a bit with some of this monumental architecture. architecture. Yeah. And the building there started under King Dozier's reign in mm-hmm. the Third Dynasty. His architect is somebody whose name I knew. And in fact, if you had asked me, I would have thought he was a king or a pharaoh, but he was just one of the architects, Imhotep. Yeah. He's credited with actually inventing the step pyramid. Yep. So he's like, you know, I got an idea. Let's pile these rocks up. <laughs> well, more like the king was like, hey, I want you to make the biggest structure in my name that you possibly can. Pretty much. Figure out how to do it. <laughs> well, and I want to know, like, it's not like they could 3D print or like conceive of this on, you know, a computer. Yeah. So are there remnants underneath that step pyramid? Because we don't really go in and we don't excavate them. We don't take them apart. Are there remnants underneath or around that that were other shapes that just like didn't work? Mm. And so we had to step it in? Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, actually, I think there is. I think there are like failed pyramids Hmm. that clearly just didn't work, but the remnants are still there. Yeah, I think I think there are. Or smaller ones anyway, too, because, you know, you always start smaller and then go up from there. Yeah. Yeah. So the end of the Old Kingdom, as we are discussing here, mm-hmm. uh, peaked with the Sixth Dynasty and the reigns of Pepi I and Merenre. Uh, Merenre? Merenre? Merenre I. Wow, that's totally wrong. <laughs> uh, no, that's anyway, right. I think that's right. And during, during that time, there was it was flourishing trade, mining, quarrying expeditions, um, major military campaigns were being won. I mean, you know, things were being expanded. Yep. Pretty much exactly what was going on with the Akkadian Empire yeah. and all of Mesopotamia. Yep. Yeah. The whole area was just like, this is a great time to be alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The rulers of the Sixth Dynasty actually gradually weakened a little bit in favor of what they call nomarchs. I, I oh, wonder if that's like a no. play on monarch, but they didn't really have the word monarch. Mm. And I think this was probably given by historians later on, that term. But these are essentially regional governors that kind of started to step out of their lane a little bit. I wonder if nomad is kind of a root in there somewhere. I don't nomarchs. know. I don't know. Interesting. But the nomarchs, um, they didn't have any royal family affiliation. They did have hereditary leadership in their regions, typically. Mm-hmm. But they were, again, you know, speaking bad of the king and, and basically... Um, trying to gain a little bit more power in their own little regions and they Mm -hmm. were taking power away from From, the kingdom at the same time that this huge drought that affected the whole area started to happen. That's so interesting because that is kind of the same philosophy that Sargon had in the Akkadian Empire, but rather than being, they were they were trusted advisors and governors that he was yeah. sending out. So they were people that were on his side. His side. Sure. It sounds like the the sixth dynasty rulers didn't choose their their nomarchs. 
mm-hmm. very well. And they should have been people that were loyal to them and they weren't. Yeah. Interesting. So during this time where you've got these guys stepping up a little bit and, and talking bad about the king, they are, again, regional governors. Mm-hmm. But the people, including the regional governors, still expect the royal government to handle certain things like Nile flood control. Mm-hmm. Controlling the flooding of the Nile was seen as, uh, and it was in it, historically, one of the biggest like engineering accomplishments of the Egyptian empire. Uh, it was just... You know, they they basically had channels and they had all kinds of things to control where that where that water went so, because the flooding of the Nile was their lifeblood. Yeah, like they were directed into the various fields that needed yeah. water in order to grow the crops that they needed to feed all of their people, right? Yeah, and the Nile flooding was annual and predictable and yeah. they knew what it was going to happen yeah. and they just like counted on it. That's so cool that they just took that like natural phenomenon yeah. and just used it. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. Well, the drought that again started around 2200 BC and lasted for almost 50 years and caused the Nile flooding to slow down and eventually stop altogether. Oh, wow. Yeah, because there was just no water. It couldn't flood. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, the royal government and these living gods who couldn't do anything about it were blamed for that. Right. And the regional governors started stepping up and saying, well, the government's not doing anything. So um, essentially what this resulted in was historically, we now call that the end of the old kingdom and the beginning of the first intermediate period. Wow. Right. So. So like this, this drought that was causing chaos basically around the world, at least in these latitudes ended one of the greatest (laughs) Egyptian kingdoms that, that had been seen up to that point. Yeah. It's crazy. They're they're gods. We think they can't make it rain apparently. (laughs) So that just goes to show you that climate change is a big deal. Climate change is a big deal. Although it, it, in this case it was just like a, it was a drought, but it wasn't, unnatural or anything right it was just the the global climate cycles ebb and flow and it just happened to be a drought period we'd have to do a little more research to find out what caused the droughting in that area at that time it obviously wasn't human generated they weren't doing anything that would have caused that so it was some sort of either you know solar activity or uh, some sort of natural cycle Mm. that they just got hit with at the same time you know Mm -hmm. coming right back around or or something else i don't know what the deal is but the interesting thing that i take away from this is how do things like that affect us now right Mm -hmm. like how we we don't look at our politicians as uh, gods but we do look at our politicians sometimes as people who need to solve the big problems Mm -hmm. and anytime Right, right. Anytime you, you know, your car hits a pothole on the road, you're like, you know, uh, thanks, Obama. Right? <laughs> that kind of thing. So <laughs> maybe you go like a couple steps lower than a politician from 10 years ago. But but, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like, yeah. you're just like, we, we don't, I mean, we, we see infrastructure, we blame the people in charge yeah. because it's not my job, yeah. right? It's not my job to it's do that. It's not your job. Correct. But if we end up with, you know, major drought like California is going through right now, California has been in a major drought for like 20 years mm-hmm. and it is only getting worse. Right. And, you know, they've got a lot of strife around their governor and, and people, you know, blaming the governor, whoever the governor is at the certain time you're talking about this, mm-hmm. for letting too much of their rivers, you know, drain into the ocean. Everybody thinks they should be damming them up and taking that river, that river water and, and using it for crops, using it for drinking water, things like that. There's just a lot of stuff going on. And it it's interesting how, you know, the Egyptians are dealing with this, the Akkadians, you know, the Mesopotamian Empire is dealing with this. And then, like, nothing changes. It still just, like, rolls back down to right here. And I'm like, how are we still letting weather essentially 
affect our like, lives have like such that. Such a big effect on us. Yeah. Now, before you say anything, on on you know, write us in uh, on email. I know it's <laughs> not just climate change this yeah. time. It's well, it's not just. Uh, natural climate change is anthropogenic climate change yeah, as well it's, it's so human, yeah human made so it's a whole thing and yeah. you know we got to kind of kind of deal with what we made but but it is interesting because if you look back in history drought has caused so many of the issues in yeah. the world for past ancient civilizations and it's just something that we cannot get a handle on we can't we can't mm-hmm. figure it out as a people, as a human population, making sure that everybody has access to the water that they need yeah. to feed their families and, you know, live and thrive. It's just something that is really hard and it continues to be very hard, even in our super modern world that we live in today. I mean, we're just talking about California, but like third world countries, yeah. so many of them have such a problem getting access to good, clean water. Like water access is... It is still a problem in a lot of places. So, well, here's the thing. You know, we uh, were just actually talking about this on our drive today. I was thinking about it and brought up in conversation. We spent a couple of weeks down in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, in April, mm-hmm. and like three or four days in, I was actually washing dishes, and the water just stopped coming out of the tap. <laughs> That's not something that's ever happened to me before. I mean, it has happened in the RV, but that's again well, but we're aware very similar. When that's yeah. going to happen, <laughs> well, if we're paying attention, yeah. yeah. But it's just like they're doing a lot of construction across the street, and my first thought was somebody either busted a water main, or they shut or, it off, or they shut it off, right? Yeah. Yeah, because they were doing something, and we just didn't get warning because we don't own the condo that we were living in. But I messaged after we waited a couple hours because Never of that. On. I didn't think it was an emergency. It didn't come on. We messaged the Airbnb host who lives down the street, and she basically said, oh, you're out of water. I'll get it filled tonight. And I'm <laughs> like, like, what? <laughs> yeah. I went out there when she when she when uh, when I heard the trucks show up, and she was out there too, and each one of the parking spots had an access door, and underneath that access door is a 5,000 liter tank yeah. that each individual condo has as their water supply. And they're responsible for filling it. And you're responsible for filling it. Yeah. That's crazy. And I, I think if everybody on the planet, especially Americans and, you know, the British, people who just turn on the water and can leave it running and yeah, it seems like, like it's an endless supply. My mom. Yeah. Not that she listens to this podcast, but right? mom walks away from the kitchen sink with the water just running. Well, when your whole water bill for like a month is, uh, you know, $60, you just don't you know, think about we're not it. charging enough for it. Yeah. You know, so we either it's need to charge more enough. for it or we all need our own little water supplies that have to get filled because then we'll be hyper conscious of how much water yeah, we're using. Definitely. So I think raising the price of water for people that can afford it makes sense because you have to also you just don't want water to become a resource that that people of a certain class yeah can access and then poor people can't. So like there's a whole lot of oh there's just always so much wrapped up in everything and that's why people who get paid a whole lot more and who are a whole Mm -hmm. lot smarter than you and I get to make those decisions and think about those things. I don't know. I'm pretty smart. (laughs) So, uh-huh. but I can't solve the water problem, <laughs> yeah. and I You're can't bring back. Days. I can't bring back the old kingdom, but I could probably make a pyramid if I had to. <laughs> you so. make a little baby one. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, well with that, that political diatribe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that kind of went off the rails a little bit. It did but that's, a little bit. It, that is what archaeology does, though. It relates. Yeah, archaeology is intended to shed a light on history so we can learn from history and proceed into the future. And make better choices for our future. Totally, I totally agree. 
All right. Well, I think what I've learned from this is I need to be a regional governor and then just take over. Because <laughs> when the drought hits, when COVID-20 hits or whatever the next COVID is. Carve out your little slice and I'm going. wave by. Let's do this thing. <laughs> yep. All right. With that, thanks guys for listening. And we'll be back next week with another exciting episode. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Please consider joining our growing core of members over at archpodnet.com slash members. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review wherever you're listening to this. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.